In today's episode of ReFi Podcast, we speak with Gregory Landua. Gregory has been dreaming about how blockchain technology can be used to measure ecological health all the way back in the early days of Bitcoin in 2009. He's been influential in building the core foundational aspects of the regenerative finance movement and is even credited by many of coining the term ReFi. We learned so much in speaking with Gregory, and we hope that you will too. And stay tuned for next week, where we drop another episode with an exciting guest. Hey, Gregory, how are you doing this morning? Doing good. John and John, John squared. Stoked to get to to connect with you guys. Absolutely. Welcome. John X, how is the uh, adventure back from Denver? Are you doing okay, man? Settling in? Yeah, it's it's a bit surreal to see you on camera again, Gregory, after meeting you in the real. That was yeah, great. it was fun. It was fun to get to hang out a little bit in Denver. And um, yeah, it was great to get to do a little bit of a deep dive with you at Bath. And um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm sort of sad that more of the Toucan and Regen teams weren't there, but it was just the right amount, I guess. So. Mm. Yeah, it, I was just struck the whole time how much more connection can be found through in-person interactions, which is saying a lot because like, you can actually connect quite deeply via video, I find. Like, you know, I felt like I'm, I met you once, John, and I feel like you're a great friend. And I've met people never on, but only online. And I'm, but yeah, it was great to uh, to spend some time with you. Um, it definitely accelerates things. Yeah, you know? totally. yeah, yeah. Well, for those who haven't had the benefit of a deep dive with Gregory, I'm grateful to have a chance to speak to you on Refi Podcast. And yeah, I just want to say thank you for helping us get this off the ground. You've been such a vocal advocate for this movement as a whole. And I think you were the one who coined the term refi in the first place. So kudos to you for kicking this thing off and just wanted to like step back and hear the story from your perspective. We've done our homework and looked at all the kind of major milestones of Regen Network, but I'm curious, like what was the origin of Regen Network and this broader movement for you personally and um, for the company as a whole? Gosh, it's always so hard to pick a specific origin moment. Um, So I don't know that I'm going to be able to pinpoint sort of like a a specific place. I I always sort of jokingly say like any good story, you kind of have to start in the middle. There's no real (laughs) beginning or end. But gosh, what would be a fun place to start? Um, as I was saying that I actually had this image of, uh, so when I was in college, I, um, I studied marine and terrestrial ecology and I got, I was lucky enough to spend six months in the Galapagos, um, studying in the Galapagos and, you know, Galapagos is a beautiful, storied, complicated place, like pretty much everywhere else on earth, but um, but more so, <laughs> you know, because Darwin, you know, there's like this, the, the scientific, um, movement, the, the, re- the great religion of science, <laughs> this is like a shrine to the great religion of science. Like Darwin went there, like you can see his footsteps, <laughs> you know, the tortoises and the finches, right? So it's just, there, there's, 
the the global establishment of scientific um of of, the, of i guess you could say the scientific elite really looks to the galapagos and there's tours and everything is just really um there and then at the same time there's like local folks who are just living there you know living their lives and um anyway the, back in the day in the it, when the european kind of expansion was taking place colonial expansion was taking place pirates and whalers would use the galapagos as a watering hole and they dropped off goats and these goats radically transformed these fragile desert island ecologies right they ate everything and they in it increased desertification so by the you know fast forward a couple hundred years here i am you know sort of a happy go lucky um gringo student kid having fun and learning science and trying to figure things out and um and you know get dropped in the middle of this complex political political ecology and economy of like what's happening with the galapagos and they were trying to remove goats from islands to reestablish in quotes the native ecology and in order to do that they were bringing in like helicopter gunships and they were machine gunning the goats at huge expense and actually with like fairly low success in actually like getting rid of them and so they were wasting all of this money to try to move the ecology back to this you know pre um colonial ecosystem that Darwin would have seen to try to like recreate this historical moment in time. So there's this, this complex set of like beliefs and that people thinking that this is what the tourists need. And, and I just witnessed that. I witnessed that as a young, you know, a young adult. And I was just basically like, what the f is wrong with people? You know, and, and I had had a couple of other moments of that in my life. But that one was specifically and particularly jarring because the the I, I, almost like the grief and the anger at seeing the goats just getting machine gunned. And I, I had I saw this happen once, and I was just like, "What the hell is going on?" It was really impactful for me, and um, I was like, "There has to be a better way. There has to be a better way for us as humans if we would like to have an impact." if we would like to have a conscious relationship and impact with these desert ecosystems, there's got to be like a million better ways to control the goat population. Like I, I'm not even calling into question. Do we want to control the goats or not? Great. Let's control the goats. Super. You know, how might we go about that? And I, that really catalyzed me starting to think and research and read and just sort of like go on a whole sort of mental expert exploration back then, and this must have been like 2003 or something, um, around what, you know, what are the political, what are the economic incentives and political mechanisms and social and cultural mechanisms that people can use to have a conscious interaction with their environment instead of sort of doing things like, hey, We'll send in the gunships and like just go to war with this ecosystem because we want to bludgeon it back into some sort of like shape that we desire it to be. So 
you know, maybe that's that, that's a, as good a place as any to put the origin. <laughs> and so that must have been quite an emotional signature in your mind. But where did blockchain come into the mix? Yeah, so I was aware of Bitcoin really early. Um, I remember sort of sitting around a campfire in 2009 and discussing Bitcoin with a bunch of like bioregional permaculture hippies and, and having a whole discussion about bioregional, about sort of like digital bioregional currencies. And, um, and that was, so that was at the bioregional Congress in 2009 that I helped organize and uh, David Alhinky and there was a bunch of really awesome folks there who, who folks, if, um, another super OG in the, in the sort of regeneration movement, uh, Daniel Christian wall did a nice interview with David. Um, I don't know, like three months back or something. So it's, it's probably worth linking that in the show notes. Um, and at that time we were experimenting with, sort of a, a time bank style digital currency at Gaia University, which is was like the OG kind of like, I guess, digital regeneration, you know, uh, anarchist revolution uh, disguised as a university <laughs> kind of uh, group of humans. And yeah, we had this digital currency called the Amate back then. And the Amate was like an hour of learning time and you could, you know, we had sort of digitized that and you could swap it with your peers to try to make it more efficient for people to kind of like invest energy in each other's learning journeys. Um, so there was a lot of stuff happening back then, you know, like right around the time and preceding the publish uh, publishing of the Bitcoin white paper. Also, I've been working with complementary currencies a fair amount, just like local currencies and complementary currencies. And um, and I realized in that stretch, and this is going to be, you know, super controversial for a certain <laughs> subset, maybe of your audience, I don't know, but certainly of people who are involved in sort of the alternative or complementary currency movement. Um, it, back then, I realized unless there's some sort of like speculative hype engine or some really radical culture change, most that, that like alternative or complementary currency movement just sort of like doesn't have legs because the amount of effort that it takes to sort of like, you have, to, it's like a moral, it's like you have to, you have to make this moral decision to use some currency that very few people use and it makes your life really hard. <laughs> and so it doesn't like build momentum. And so I was tracking Bitcoin um, early because I was like, oh, this is really interesting. Um, and yeah, and then there was a period of time that, you know, it just sort of like went dark for me. I wasn't really paying a lot of attention to it for a few years. Um, I wrote um, Regenerative Enterprise, which sort of version 1.0 which sort of became a cult classic in the permaculture movement a lot of people teach the eight forms of capital um a lot of people teach the sort of like the different principles that we put together around what it means to be sort of engaging in um 
business as a force for regeneration. And, um, and you'll notice in that book, we didn't mention, I don't think we mentioned Bitcoin. Um, <clears throat> so it was sort of like subsurface back then. And then, you know, serendipity, I, I guess, one of the folks who launched um, the Ethereum crowd sale, you know, there was a group of 10 or so people who came together to kind of like launch Ethereum. One of those people happened to have taken a permaculture course from one of my good friends and co-founder Christian and Brecht. Um, and uh, yeah, so he and I got introduced and started jamming and he was very uh, advocating pretty hard for us to build sort of a, a smart contract, the version of what later became region network um, back. And I guess this would have been like, you know, these conversations were like 2015, 2016. So I started doing a lot of research into sort of the Ethereum approach to all of this. Um, I was super skeptical at that time. Like there was a big hump, there was a big mountain for me to climb to like work through and reason through what, um, blockchain mint and sort of endows mint for that community and how that did or didn't relate to my sort of like li particular lineage and understanding of what regeneration and regenerative finance means or or could mean um and yeah in 2017 i took a paternity leave for, to welcome my first son and that's a whole nother like millennial kind of like hilarious millennial journey because i had my livelihood at that point was permaculture. Like I was doing permaculture design and consulting and that's not at that moment. And now it's a little different. You know, you can, you can make pretty good money if you're a good permaculture designer. Um, and there's some really successful businesses and that was just the beginning of that. So it was not like I was like, Oh, I'm just going to get paid paternity leave. Like I live in the States. That's not really. So I, I did a little GoFundMe campaign for my community to, you know, afford, I think I raised like $3,000, which was enough to give myself three months of paternity leave. And, um, you know, and I also had back in 2015, late 2015, maybe purchased some ETH and some Bitcoin on Coinbase. You know, I'd been an early like, oh, cool. I could like go snag some so there's a like confluence of events with that like that friend deep in the ethereum world holding a little bit of eth and bitcoin at the beginning of 2017 and then taking time to welcome my son and just like having spaciousness to be like walking him out in the woods and you know just sort of like contemplating my life and that was the spring of 2017 which was a crazy moment in history it's like the overton window of like what money is was just sort of like spread wide you know and all of a sudden there was a huge community of people inquiring together into what a store of value or a unit of account meant what money meant what public goods were you know what what law like digital law and smart contracts where all of this stuff was just like bubbling and, and fermenting and really exciting. And at that moment, you know, somewhere in there, maybe in May or so um, a month or so after my son was born, I was like, okay, you know, I'm all in, I'm going to just like all, all of my resources and time are just going to start going into what does it look like to build, to sort of like use this moment in history to, to sort of like, 
really go all in and see what does it look like to build public infrastructure for ecological um and and at that time so now like what was i thinking back then what i was thinking was all value is socially constructed all of it all money all of it is a social construct of some sort whether it's gold or shell beads or bitcoin whatever um it's a social construction of a community of people that choose together to have consensus about what is valuable and why and um I started asking, how would we reconnect? How would that social process be connected to an ecological process of regeneration? What does it? What What is the infrastructure? What is the? Um, what are the social processes? What are the tech tech technology? What's the technology infrastructure um, to to deeply connect the social construction of value to ecological regeneration uh, and just sort of like imbue them with one another. Um, and region network was born out of that question, essentially, which it, in the early days, you know, and this will probably resonate really strongly with John X in the early days and still, but in the early days, a lot of our attention was around um, the sort of sense making collective sense making about ecological state. And a lot of our process was around what we were referring to around ecological state protocols and sort of like the knowledge network of humans um, being able to generate consensus about ecological state and changes of state and then being able to choose incentive models around what they what they would like to see happening in a particular ecosystem and that kind of brings you back to what I was thinking about in the Galapagos right which is like what would it mean if if, if this community of people were to say actually what we want is these desert islands to have sort of like this pre-Columbian pristineness and therefore the ecological state could be described in the following ways and therefore we will base our economy, our human economy on sort of like moving in that direction, right? So that that way of thinking about things um, I think had been with me for a little while when I sort of took the plunge into the, the blockchain world. So you said that the early early on the a lot of it was oriented around this sense making around the ecological state and by that i interpret you to mean taking measurements of an an ecosystem over time and is that kind that's, of what well that's that's i just to be clear that is specifically the the method of sense making that western mm -hmm. rational society yeah. Um, uses to generate consensus about like empirical reality, right? So that the, the specific ontology of like how do we know something is sort of you know I, I guess actually it's um, you know it's it's epistemology. That's like a that's like a, a specific epistemology of like how the world like how we know something. But I I think I have all have long hoped that although this could be an impossible sort of like um, Sisyphean task. I, I've long hoped that we could build a general purpose enough technological infrastructure so that it serves to regenerate kind of what I would refer to as the vestigial organ of cultural connection with the greater than human world. 
And what I mean by that is there's many different, like from an anthropological perspective, there's many different ways that communities go about um, understanding the greater than human world and their role in it, right? And that and that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be using scientific measurement as the as the foundation. It does mean that in our cultural context, there's going to be like a giant sort of shelling point and center of gravity around that. But I've always thought this same process should be as applicable if you sort of transliterate it out of, out of sort of like Western science and you think there's a council of elders who are holding a story about the landscape and that story is being spoken and people are agreeing that, that they're acting in accordance to that story that is a social process of generating consensus about the set of you know norms and actions that people are going to sort of um, embed into a landscape, right? And in the digital world, that could look like sort of a social media storytelling. That could look like that could look like sort of like almost like art and NFT approach to how this takes place, a qualitative story-driven approach could be um could also i think achieve the same thing right so um and and in some in some ways i think the fusion of those two is very interesting right where you you're fusing story driven mythopoetic driven sort of approaches that speak more deeply to some core part of the human you know, journey and human evolution alongside the sort of rational scientific perspective is actually where my instinct of where this starts to get really like transformative. But, um, but the reason that I use that sort of like term of collective sense-making instead of just sort of like saying straight out, like how do we measure ecological state is specifically because I want to create space for multiple ways of knowing and multiple ways of generating knowing in different communities. And I think what I hear you there is casting vision that might be quite hard for people now to understand in the same way you saw the opportunity for Bitcoin to be applied to, you know, regional proliferation of ecological currencies, (laughs) you describing this, you know, diverse set of sense making that reflects the, you know, amazing intricacies of, of human culture from, you know, the masculine energy to the feminine energy, the measure, you know, quantifiable to the qualitative, like it is really, I think, indicative of your ability to see something clearly, Gregory, that other people will eventually see. It just takes time. And I just can't, you know, remark about how early you were to all of this, like talking about Bitcoin in 2009 in the application of permaculture, you know, in the crew with Ethereum as the crowdsource was being planned. Like you've been here for a long time. You've seen the space and you've also well, just named, to, just mm-hmm. to be clear, I wasn't in that crew. Of course. <laughs> I just met still, somebody who was later. <laughs> still, yeah. still like it, it's, it's incredible. You know, you've been here and you've got an amazing perspective and wisdom that's accrued throughout all of that. And so I'm curious to understand, like there's obviously a long journey and a, an exciting trajectory, but I'd love if you could bring us up to speed to where Regen is now both in terms of, you know, the technology and the market and, you know, the community and ecosystem. Like, I think it'd be great to just kind of 
draw the boundaries and look at what regen is and how people can plug into it and you know what's what's going on that you're really excited about in terms of the big picture and where you're headed regen network is sort of secured and the backbone of regen network you could say is a blockchain called regen ledger regen ledger is built using the cosmos sdk which means that we have our own um specific governance token distribution that governs that blockchain and allows the community to decide what the executable logic is that lives on chain so there's not an arbitrary smart contracting framework or virtual machine currently living on region ledger so like in ethereum there's the ethereum virtual machine on um Polkadot, they have a Wasm-based virtual machine, and Near also has a Wasm-based virtual machine. Solana has a, a, a virtual machine that uses Rust. I don't know that it's Wasm, actually. Um, in the Cosmos world, you can have multiple different virtual machine choices. At the moment, Region Ledger doesn't have a virtual machine, You know, meaning a, just an arbitrary system that somebody can just go throw up some executable logic and just like execute it. Like we have an application-specific blockchain. So that means the consensus secures what that blockchain can and cannot do. So it's very specific, right? It's not a Turing-complete blockchain that does everything. It's a blockchain that does specific things. The specific things that we choose to include on our blockchain are built and carefully vetted and um, hardened and audited and then put up on chain in order to achieve this goal uh, broadly of linking the social construction of value to ecological health and specifically to build application logic that allows us to monitor, measure, verify, and issue tokens that represent ecological state or changes of state. And so all of the only logic and the only thing that region ledger is ever going to do is that sort of like providing um, tools that, are in this sort of beginning phase around the origination of um, ecological tokens, ecological assets, the digitization of ecological health in some way that a community of people thinks is important. Um, the way that we conceptualize that is that you need to bring communities together to define a set of rules for the minting of an ecological asset. Currently, we conceptualize that as an eco-credit um, Eco-credit sort of governance can happen as a DAO, essentially, on chain, on region, ledger, and then create the rules for minting an ecological asset. The, the, the most common current asset that we've been focused on are voluntary carbon credits because there's a market for voluntary carbon credits. There's sort of like a social consensus about this as a value that nature can provide either you know, sequestering carbon and carbon removals or humans providing and avoiding emissions by conserving forests, et cetera. Um, so we've sort of, um, I think similar to Toucan, have this concept of, hey, if other humans are already agreeing that this is a value, we can use those rules and we can just digitize those sort of and tokenize that and that's good enough. So you can sort of like have this initial flow of value where digitized, which represents, you know, a group of people saying like, Hey, this is a carbon credit and it's valuable for the following reasons and in the following places. Um, but we're really interested in 
sort of like moving significantly deeper than that to have a natively Web3, natively community originated system of this ecological value. And that's really where the bulk of our research and development time and attention goes. And so there's more than 40 different groups developing eco credits for region network right now. And that spans the whole gamut from blue carbon, um, ocean conservation without a carbon element, um, soil carbon, several different sorts, agroforestry, uh, forest conservation, um, indigenous land management uh, of multiple sorts. So there's just like a, a big variety of people. And those people are supported by us, but really on their own in a lot of ways, thinking through the process of how to generate a social consensus, both about how do you monitor, you know, uh, report and verify specific ecological state, but also what's the agreement you're making with the world that has, that can generate some unit of value, right? Is this going to be used in like corporate offsetting or is this going to be used as a form of DeFi collateral? Is this going to be used as a regional currency system or, or, some other blue blue sky sort of um, form of value that society hasn't yet woken up to and realized. By and large, people are targeting markets that do already exist, right? But there are a few brave souls out there who are innovating new ecological asset and credit types for markets that don't yet exist. That they're just sort of like we're going to create our own market out of you know out of sheer sort of chispa, I guess, and, you know, see how that goes. So um, I'll pause there. And I imagine I sort of like opened up something. They probably have questions. So I, I won't keep going and we'll see where we go from here. So this idea of the eco-credit class, like this is a category of eco-credits that there's a governance process to define, all right, we're going to decide how we can credibly verify that an ocean conservation project has been successful and has had some kind of quantifiable amount of impact. And then that information about that project is provided to Regen Ledger. And that on that basis, these ocean conservation eco-credits are issued on the ledger. Is that r roughly getting that right? Yeah. Okay. So it's, I mean, to sort of map it to the to voluntary carbon market world, is this basically on the scale of like a methodology or are there multiple kind of... There can be multiple methodologies in a credit class. In a credit class, okay. So you, okay. Could, you could conceptualize a credit class as a layer more abstract. So you could say right. we have a credit class around carbon plus grasslands right. that we created from soup to nuts, like from, from scratch. And we sold, you know, I don't know, 100 and, 100 and some thousand carbon removal credits to Microsoft back in the end of 2019. Mm -hmm. And, but that credit as a credit class, there could be multiple methodologies that have been, that qualify because, because different soils in different parts of the world are going to require different methodological approaches to measurement. Mm -hmm. Right. And so yeah. the credit class concept is something that doesn't appear in like Vera or gold standard or other, mm -hmm sort of registry systems. Right. It's sort of novel to our approach. And then the mm -hmm. method methodologies, there's like a set of approved methodologies that relate to a specific credit class. So who plays the role of the verifiers? 
it depends on the credit class. Okay. Right. Okay. So you, that is something that you need to define. Of course. Right. So in the carbon plus grasslands, there's sort of an appro- allow list of third party verifiers. Um, and mm-hmm. then there, and the project developers themselves and the, and the land stewards both participate in generating a significant amount of the data that then gets audited by a third party sort of according to ISO standards, essentially. And then, you know, once that's been completed, issuance can take place. Um, in Avera, you know, in, in, a, in the credit class, which we sort of recently created that essentially uh, follows the NCT standard that, you know, we, was so fun to think about with Toucan and Moss and others, we essentially say, hey, the, you know, the, this is just Vera's standard, essentially. So whoever they say is um, a qualified verifier, and and the standard by which it's being verified is just that's the rules of sort of the game. Um, but we also wanted it to be possible for communities to sort of like self-verify and generate units that represent ecological state at lower cost or lower threshold. The the key is making it transparent, right? So there's sort of a tagging and meta-tagging and curation functionality that we've been building, which enables people sort of to to say okay this is sort of a you know in order to get on the approved list of like rigorous credits you know you need to go through this extra step um or those maybe are included in the credit class itself there's there's a lot of flexibility so it's sort of a a choose your own adventure community governed registry system essentially is what is is like at the heart of what region ledger is used for by the community and so you touched on Vera and the role they play in the system at an eco-credit class level. Is it, I don't know, sufficient to say that, um, I'm curious to unpack this, like Vera and Gold Standard and others seem to have built credibility in the voluntary carbon market that helps attribute value to the credits that they issue. And what I'm hearing you say is, um, you know, they can also attribute value to the credits that are issued on region ledger, but there might be a separate eco-credit class that somebody else in a community determines that doesn't meet those standards and is still issued on region ledger. And there could be a demand source that still determines that to be valuable, but it doesn't necessarily have to go by the books that Vera and Gold Standard set. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. No, 100%. The bulk of eco-credits will not probably will not be will will live outside of vera and gold standard um um crediting standards uh, would be my guess and although this is an open protocol so if vera and gold standard would like to sort of like step in and take ownership of credit classes and sort of imbue their governance and be adaptive iterative and agile in sort of um creating more transparency and more um, engagement around their mm-hmm. standards, mm-hmm. Yeah. they could either do that right on region ledger, right? Or mm-hmm. the way we've been trying to build this is quite modular. So they could spin up their own essentially fork of region ledger that mm-hmm. can give them all of this functionality and can interoperate seamlessly. Between you know, because yeah. because we live in the we live in the cosmos world in which 
interoperation between blockchains is a fundamental need, the, the interoperability. And so using interblockchain communication standards, they could fork region ledger and create sort of a, a proof of authority version of region ledger that they control firmly and mm-hmm. and sort of like launch their own registry system, right? That just is a digital articulation of their rules. And those credits could come over to the region ledger marketplace or other marketplaces originating from their own space. And this is a decision that we made really early is that we didn't want to force sort of the tyranny of network effect in any of our decisions. We wanted to sort of pioneer and make things as good as possible. But there's also sort of a fundamental assumption that nested governance, like people need to govern their sense-making process around ecological health, the, Mm -hmm. the actual people who this affects to the highest degree possible. And this is that statement that I just made is why I think Polygon, for instance, is a dumpster fire of a place mm-hmm. to be um, deploying regenerative finance tools. Who governs mm-hmm. Polygon? Right? Who who governs it? Can anybody answer that? I've never heard a good answer about who. Go- I think Polygon sort of like pretends that it's like Ethereum mm-hmm. and that there's no governance. Right. That that there's like because in the Ethereum model, there's like a soft governance because of mining and da 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 da. And there's the developers and there's the users, and they sort of like all sort of do a soft consensus about what's going to happen. But in Polygon, it is actually a fast finality, tendermint based, used Cosmos software, runs the Ethereum virtual machine, and is a proof of stake network that should be governing itself. But who governs it? <laughs> so so, and and who can interoperate with it? Expensive bridging, other things. So one of the things that we've spent a huge amount of our time and attention from an engineering perspective is ensuring that neither we nor other people in our sphere are enforcing like a, tyra- a tyranny of network effect where you, you have to sort of like get sucked in to a set of economic relationships that aren't actually beneficial to your community's aims and the ecological health that under, underpins your choice to engage with this. And mm-hmm. we've made those decisions, which makes the engineering effort kind of significantly harder to get to market because, you know, the foundation for ecological health on this planet is fundamentally, you know, what's left of it is by and large stewarded by, stewarded by indigenous peoples, stewarded by societies that have been marginalized by the global economy if you don't ensure that they are at choice around the level of participation in Mm -hmm. the economy and and can grow their capability to to govern as much as is needed um, and also have the usability to engage simply and easily um I think we're doing something wrong, right? So if people are forced to sort of like engage with a set of rules because they need the money, but they actually don't really agree with what's going on, all we've done is we've we've recapitulated the exact same economic structure that we're trying in in the regenerative finance movement to to transcend. Right, we're trying to shift the, the, the game theory and the economic interactions so that people can have a set of economic interaction, economic interactions that benefit their environment, their the ecosystems that they live in, and 
sort of do so in a voluntary way where they're making their choices, right? We don't want to be reiterating and recapitulating the same old shit. Mm. I think that's what you just described is one of the key values of Web3 that we don't really talk about very much, which is that it's opt-in, right? That nobody's forced you to create a, a, a Kepler or a MetaMask wallet. Nobody's... To, to this point, obviously, with central bank digital currencies coming down the pike, that might might shift. But um, I that's that's also a big lesson in the Kernel Fellowship that this idea that uh, this is kind of your own sovereign choice to participate. Um, so I think that's that's really powerful. But I'm taking it a step further. I think, and I'm saying not only is it yes, it's our sovereign choice to participate, but you should also we should do everything we can in our design to make it possible to have a zero cost exit from any network that is no longer working. So mm-hmm. it should be, it should, yeah. it, it should be win-win, right? And as long as it's actually genuinely win-win, great, I'll stay in the network. But the moment that it's win-lose, I, I should be able to take all of my assets or as close to all of them as we can figure out and I should be able to leave that network. And that forces the game theory to be our voluntary association and our engagement. Like the governance is is going to really look after ensuring that this is working for everybody. Because mm-hmm. the moment that it stops working for somebody, it's going to be so easy and cheap for them to just leave and and create their own sovereign zone. That, cr- that allows them to operate under the economic principles and rules that they need for their context. That, that's, and that's, that's the sort of like, that's the place that Cosmos as a community puts a flag further, further from that, for, like much deeper <laughs> into the territory of, um, I think, radical plurality and decentralization that is common I think is common. I don't think that it's non-existent, but that is common amongst the Ethereum centric part of the web three world. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I have to confess being new to this space and coming in through the, you know, largely the door of the Ethereum ecosystem. A lot of those ideas are, are new to me and I do understand some of the complexity of what you described. And it sounds like there's a lot to unpack there because there are, um, instances in which the system you're in is decaying and starting to collapse and you need to be able to realign your capital with you know value aligned actors and i totally hear that that use case and i guess i want to try and unpack it kind of a core mental model um what you guys have done here in that you know you have this eco credit module where people can define um methodology for evaluating some type of ecological and human benefit that people are willing to pay for. And what I see is, you know, you and many others have aligned on the voluntary credit market, uh, the voluntary carbon market as one way to quantify, you know, planet positive behaviors that people are willing to pay for in the form of, you know, sequestered or avoided emissions. And I, I guess I'm wondering, like, who who are the key partners outside of, you know, Vera or Gold Standard that can, you know, work to help define these classes or these methodologies to really catalyze 
climate financing to the right projects. Because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about where the money needs to flow in order to actually, you know, avoid gigatons of emissions and draw gigatons out of the atmosphere. I'm curious to get your take on that. Well, so first I'll say I have a lot of gratitude to Gold Standard and Vera and and um, Plan Vivo and Climate Action Reserve and other existing voluntary standards bodies, and we're really standing on the shoulders of giants when we when we do this work. And that said, I'm pretty radically. Um, um, I don't think that they're doing enough, and in in the right way. So that's part of why we, we, we want to maintain sort of backwards interoperability with those ways of doing things. But really our innovation is, and, and our focus and what we spend our time and money on is going beyond that to create a natively Web3 claims and data registry system for ecological asset generation, right? And curation governance, that's what we're, that's what we're after. And why? Why are we putting so much attention on that, it's specifically because we want a peer-to-peer marketplace in which land stewards can get paid directly by people who need to finance the impact. Um, And we can shorten that loop so that people are getting paid specifically for the ecological impact that they're creating. So taking a step back, we're really interested not just in outcome credits, Right, which is, you know, an outcome is like carbon sequestration or carbon storage, right, which we would refer to as avoided emissions, but really it's that the carbon is continuing to be stored there. <laughs> There's a whole reinvention of how people think about carbon, I think, that needs to take place. And that's going to be underway. There's going to be disruption. That's going to be underway over the next few years. Um, but also, we're really focused on, pra- like, for instance, practice based credits. People, can and should get paid for, you know, before the outcome can be quantified, right? Holistic managed grazing, um, agroforestry, forest conservation, reforestation, sometimes blue carbon, there's all these pipe, there's all, there's sort of all of these land management practices that we know are beneficial to stabilizing climate we just don't know exactly what the the carbon outcome is going to be yet and there needs to be 10 to 20 years of science done on it before you can create a really rigorous sort of like unit of account that's carbon specific and so a big part of what we actually focus on at the moment is creating credit classes that are sort of decoupled or loosely coupled with the outcome itself right and so where you specifically can pay for the practice or this the ecological state without having to to have a robust approach to measuring or modeling the specific carbon outcomes because again that's complicated science right and it takes time to gather data and to build a methodology that is rigorous enough for market acceptance. So I, it's, I don't know that I'm exactly nailing your question, John, but I think that's an important sort of like piece of the puzzle in terms of like how we think about it. It's, it's taking a step back and saying it isn't just outcomes, right? There are practices 
or approaches to stewardship that, um, you know, so for instance, many forms of kind of conservation or low-till, no-till agriculture, um, or even taking the next step to full-blown regenerative agriculture, um, we know that they do build soil. Um, We know that they reduce erosion. We can more quickly and easily quantify, for instance, impacts on flooding and erosion control than we can on the specifics of the carbon soil carbon cycle, which is kind of esoteric. We don't know how deep that you know that liquid carbon goes down into the soil. We don't know how durable. We don't really know the permanence of soil carbon. There's all these unanswered questions. It gets very heated. Scientists have very mm-hmm. different opinions about things. But it is actually much simpler to quantify, to, to monitor the practices and to quantify other co-benefits like reducing flood risk that have really significant financial impacts for like an insurance company or for a municipality that's trying to do storm drain runoff mitigation or trying to mitigate mm-hmm. nitrogen runoff in their storm drain. So there's this whole world of ecological impacts that can be achieved through sort of more of a payment for ecosystem service approach where you're saying, hey, if you practice X, Y, and Z and you collect data, we'll pay you on a yearly basis this amount. And those sorts of contracts and agreements are really, I think, pivotal to region networks, I guess you could say sort of midterm strategy where you can have municipalities paying farmers directly in a peer-to-peer process where they, they don't have to go buy some abstract carbon credit from some market from who knows where, they're actually, you know, they're making payments directly to somebody who's in their community to come to, to do something that has a measurable impact on that municipal um, context, right? And so for, let's say, a landowner specifically, you know, you guys have this carbon plus grassland methodology what's the barrier is it 200 acres what's the minimum size that that this module methodology is able to take on board for a plot of land yeah so the carbon plus grasslands um specifically isn't it is an outcome credit right it's a carbon removal credit um which means that the level of monitoring um meets or exceeds um existing standards in order mm-hmm. to sort of like make it in the marketplace. Um, I think probably to make it economically viable at the current sampling costs, you know, and current verification costs, you probably need at, probably at least 500 acres, you okay. know, and it's probably more like a thousand acres that that really starts to work at the current price of carbon and the current mm-hmm. price of monitoring in order to achieve that, you know, so it's not great. It's not where we want it to be, but I also, the, the cost, you know, the cost of monitoring, I think is being driven down through innovation. So Mm -hmm. I'd expect that over the course of a year or so, we -hmm. can drive down the, the sort of the cost and the, and draw, and also the market for carbon, should be heading up although things like the threat of world war three and other (laughs) challenging and you know heart-wrenching realities Mm -hmm. may disrupt all of those assumptions 
Um, you know, I think we can probably get it down closer to a hundred acres, you know, which would be really cool. And so the value proposition for them is, you know, they've got some grasslands and, and maybe, maybe we take it cause I know this slightly better from a regenerative agriculture standpoint. So I set up a small social enterprise in response to the pandemic that was designed to connect, um, you know, sustainable local businesses to conscious consumers near them through like a zero emissions delivery network. And one of the outcomes was we realized that the local food supply chain was super fragile because a lot of the farms were going out of business. A lot of the organic farms were getting squeezed by the whole, you know, confluence of crises from the pandemic to Brexit to climate change. And we needed to increase resilience in the local food economy. So, um, you know, two of my co-founders have continued to push that business forward and they've started a small farm. And, you know, the economic incentives um, right now from the local government are very heavily um, attributed towards people performing large scale traditional agriculture practices that deplete the soil, um, you know, poison the water supply in effect, um, are very carbon intensive, very capital intensive and have, you know, very negative consequences for all sorts of wildlife from bees and, you know, birds and everything. And so I understand um, that the voluntary carbon market in its current state can provide a monetary incentive from external places to be able to make things like regenerative agriculture more feasible. But there's all these barriers, right? You have to have a whole lot of land. It takes five years for these credits to get issued. Um, and then brokers are in the middle of this whole market, which take sometimes up to 50% of the fees. In a kind of um, future scenario with Regen Network, like what are the unit economics here? I mean, is somebody literally able to, and maybe the user experience as well, like take a farmer who's considering shifting to regenerative practices, how do they engage with Regen Network in order to um, have that additional incentive that moves them to the regenerative practices and actually make a business that works? Like how does how does that experience look? Yeah, well, I mean, the unit economics already have been flipped on their head with the Carbon Plus line of credits you know um so carbon plus grasslands the in that in that initial pilot uh 85 percent of the payment went to the farmer right which is completely unheard of <laughs> in that's totally that's the opposite so generally 20 percent of 20 percent of credit uh cash gets to a land steward and 80% is eaten up by the complex sort of Byzantine middle of everything that's going on. Like, um, and w- so we've sort of flipped that plus a little bit. 20%? Um, Are you serious? Yeah. I mean, so <laughs> I got that That's even much worse than I heard. Yeah, I got that from a, um, a deck, a Union Square Ventures deck when they were putting together their um, sort of climate thesis back a couple of years ago. They have a slide on there that that says that um and i've seen it other, in a couple other places just to cite that um maybe we could put put that deck in the show notes or something yeah, um, so people know that i'm not just making that up <laughs> um so okay so yes the 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 what is coming on region network is the ability for land stewards to issue credits directly into the marketplace right and set their own price um, and have people come and purchase and offset using that so that the money goes directly to the land steward and and 
And I think the way you'll see this go is directly to the land steward project developer and verifier. So that, that these, so that an alliance between verifiers, project developers, and land stewards to bring these credits to market sort of comes and, and essentially what you'll start to see, I think, is credit issuance is getting split between the actors. So you, they're sort of in an entrepreneurial alliance to, to sort of do the work on the ground, to, to provide the data, to monitor the data, and to, to package all of that up and issue something that can be audited in a, in a rigorous way and pass that audit. So, um, you know, I think that's how the economics are going to start to play out. Although, you know, we're sort of flexible about, about how that ends up sort of emerging, really. So it's, it's almost like um, in the same way that Uber made it possible for anybody with a car to become, you know, a taxi driver. Region Network is making it possible with anyone who has, what, a smartphone and a connection to a local land and economy to verify planet positive behaviors and help create, you know, planet positive marketplaces for land stewards of all types to make money out of doing the right thing for the earth. Yeah, definitely. Uh, for specific credit classes. I mean, I think there's always yeah. going to there's going to be this spectrum, right? I, I think of crediting or generation of ecological assets sort of like the standard long tail sort of graph, where on one end, you're going to have sort of institutional grade credits that are quite, ex that are always going to be pretty expensive. And they're going to be data intensive, science intensive, and they're going to generate an enormous amount of sort of uh, like everybody else is going to be able to draft off of those. They're going to be building in our model. They're going to be building open source models and methodologies. They're going to be collecting data. They're going to be improving our ability to understand ecological health and carbon cycles, but they're going to be like the best of the best. They're, people are going to pour lots of money into research and measurement and auditing. Right. And then there's going to be this long tail where there's credit classes that, yeah, John, they, they refer to a global model and all they require is somebody to take a smartphone photo and verify that land use. Or it could even be automated. Like we can do a lot of this from Sentinel-2 data um, and, and other publicly available data sources where you can do, run a land classification algorithm and tell if somebody's doing agrofor agroforestry or silvopasture or something else and just like automatically issue credits that you know, could be staked in order to qualify for an audit system and then could transform to a rigorous outcome credit later, all sorts of really cool sort of like opportunities for building these sort of like nested in incentive structures within that larger sort of superstructure that we're building. And, and so in the same way that Bitcoin created a system to incentivize people to point, you know, specialized hardware at maintaining the security of the network, Regen is pioneering an open system in which people can create new incentives to participate in validating the health of the earth and get paid for which it. We, which we, in our early white paper days, referred to as reverse mining. <laughs> so, so this concept of anchoring like a proof of work concept where you have to labor, you have to provide data, you have to change land use. There's a lot of, it's scarce. It's hard to do to produce these forms of value, right? But creating the superstructure so that there's an sort of a, a, an intersubjective verification and sense-making process to generate the outcome, right? Um, is what's key. And I think unique 
to, to region network up until now, right? And I think some of what we're talking about is starting to become more, it, either we are incepting it into the movement or people are copying it or, or it's just becoming convert through convergent evolution. It's more obvious to more people, you know, ecosystems and cultures are context and place specific. So having like a totalizing approach isn't really going to work. Having a single, like we have the one algorithm that can, you know, qualify you for getting like your credit issuance. We, we really, there may be, um, I think there will be global um, algorithmic approaches that can issue certain types of credits, right? Um, for sure. But those are never going to be um, everything, nor are they ever going to be the most precise and accurate. So you need to sort of nest that with, with like this gradation of like robust institutional grade science with sort of like mm -hmm. folk citizen science where people are yeah. like making their own thing. And when those three levels sort of click and interoperate together and can sort of like ebb and flow, I, I think what we, what our thesis is there will be a Cambrian explosion of Cambrian explosion of new forms of value and essentially what we'll see is a reinvention of what money means what a reinvention of what value is and this really um this will be the regenerative finance revolution in which there is um, a new way that humans are able to generate wealth um that is coherent with and in uh, a, a sort of positive feedback loop with ecological health. So ecological health will equal financial wealth. And that, that has not been the case, you know, uh, um, for a few hundred years at least, and maybe 10,000 years in certain cultures, right? But it is fundamentally uh, like a larger truth than any of us, that ecological health does equal wealth. Right. And if we can program in, if we can program that. And so, again, Regions thesis here is to create public infrastructure for rapid community experimentation on multiple axes and multiple forms of doing this on an infrastructure that's built by and for the refi community, that's built by and for land stewards and scientists, not that's built by and for crypto speculators, but a public infrastructure that is for the regenerative finance community so that we can control that application specific logic and that layer one blockchain to provide the, the highest degree of integrity and governance flexibility for our use case. So yeah, could you share a little bit about the demand side of the equation? Sure. Um, well, I mean, so let's unpack that in a, in a couple of different ways. So current, currently just thinking of the go-to-market demand around voluntary carbon markets, I think we're sitting at total carbon offset markets, and you guys might have this in your head more firmly established than I do at the moment, but something like $300 billion um, per year, current sort of the size of the, of the carbon market, which includes compliance and voluntary. Yeah. And then I think the compliance market is, it's kind of like a pretty small subset of that. I think it's something like six, last year, I think it was like $6 billion, um, which was the size of the market for the voluntary 
uh, market, which is essentially companies purchasing carbon offsets, even though they haven't, from a regulatory perspective, been forced to in some sort of cap and trade scheme or something like that. But um, just taking a step back, people oftentimes think that carbon offsetting markets are only like sort of like a greenwashing play. And actually, I would sort of argue whether or not we think that corporatism and like neoliberal capitalism is good or bad. I don't actually think that's what's going on. I don't think it's just a greenwashing thing. I think that corporate leaders now are considering it their fiduciary responsibility to balance their carbon budgets. Yeah. And and therefore they have carbon emissions and they need to offset those emissions on their balance sheet and so they purchase carbon credits to offset that what they can't reduce through changes in in their operations. And Which so I, in I think reflects this carbon as money narrative where it's now an asset on the balance sheet. It, exactly. So the, so now like carbon costs and benefits are being internalized onto the balance sheet and it does really reflect this carbon as money narrative. Exactly. And and there's that's quite exciting because then you can start to conceptualize the the human economy um, understanding its role in the carbon cycle, right, and baking in its role into the carbon cycle into the financial apparatus and infrastructure and monetary infrastructure that we use as sort of a, a social coordination tool, right? Mm. Um, so I think this is like this first little, I think carbon offsets really should be properly understood as this first little baby step towards a pretty radical reinvention of finance and money that. Um, that starts to re-embed humans in the larger planetary carbon cycle in a yeah. conscious way, right? In a and, culturally and, and socially conscious way. And it's the first intervention which is tethered money that was initially designed to be an infinitely growing entity to all of the rest of life, which is finite and cannot yeah. infinitely grow. Exactly. And so, and so there's so a, exciting. <laughs> yeah, I think this is a really important narrative to put forth in that, you know, the carbon market reflects an evolution of consciousness where humanity has discovered that our current economic system is destroying the earth and we need to create a tether to reality, which is, you know, the negative externalities need to be incorporated into the system as do care for the commons and care for each other. Carbon is the first kind of milestone. But what's exciting about what you guys are doing is you're creating an open source and scalable framework powered by blockchain that can take this catalyst of carbon and take it all the directions that it needs to to heal the earth and to create you know a new way of being which is super exciting so i, I would love to touch on you know who the actors in this system are that you guys are looking to get involved and what people can do and like what the incentives are here because mm. okay a billion dollar voluntary carbon market yeah. 300 billion dollar compliance market you know, this is a many trillion dollar evolving global transition as we migrate away from fossil fuels, right? It's a huge story and everybody needs to get involved. So like, what's the call to action for you guys? Well, let's let's start with, let's go back to the numbers for a second. So $6 billion voluntary market, uh, $300 billion uh, total carbon market. Of that nature-based nature, nature -based climate solutions and carbon is, is a pretty small subset. Um, we sort of operate 
at the moment, strictly within the framework of natural climate solutions and, and land management, land use, broadly oceans as well. Um, the, I, I remember a WEF report, uh, World Economic Forum report, and and a World Bank report that both came out, I think, in 2018. They were both putting the per annum nature-based um, climate, which they were including also biodiversity metrics, sort of the per annum economy as this gets internalized into the global economy at between one and two trillion dollars per year. So, so what we're, we're in this like little baby, you know, market, right? Where, um, region network, we probably, I don't know, we're at like a hundred and $20 million market cap or something as a network. Um, you know, BCT is what, like, I don't know right now, kind of BCT is kind of low, but let's just say it's like 50 or 60. Yeah. I think it's 60, 70 million. 67, 70 million, maybe nature-based carbon tons are at 20 million something. Mm-hmm. Um, Klima is, is it what, like $200 million market cap or less or more? I don't know. I, have, I think it's dropped to like track. 40 now, but yeah. Okay. Klima's, uh, okay. <laughs> Ouch. Um, Klima's at 40 million. Um, okay. There's, so you get quantifying all of this. Um Currently, and, and, you know, the establishment, you know, like the Davos crowd, people who are professionally engaged in global macroeconomic predictions are saying, you know, sort of like, if the system is going to continue without a giant disruption that was going to be enormously painful for humans, lots of suffering, societal collapses, et cetera, we're going to need to internalize only the nature part of this like climate, like internalizing um, the tether, as you put it, John, between humans and the greater than human world and our biosphere is going to look like uh, one to two trillion dollars per year. Currently, the global economy is something like a hundred trillion dollars, you know, per year thing. One, one or two percent of the global economy according to that way of thinking is going to be sort of like this internalizing the relationship with healthy ecologies into our economy. And we're very early, right? And so this is an enormous generational growth opportunity. I always would say when I was pitching Regen in the early days, I would say, look, you know, ecological assets are the most important uh, asset class from an economic perspective, from a financial perspective of the 21st century. This is mm-hmm. just the way it is. Either we get this right or, you know, th- this whole system that's evolved over millennia that we currently have um, is Collapse. just like, it's just toast. <laughs> yeah, so, well done. The risks are very high. <laughs> so we've so, got to make it so, work. And in my experience, something about humans is that when the stakes are that high, right, we change. People, people, that's the moment. And sometimes we don't, right? Maybe an addiction is a really important metaphor here. You know, like there's lots of great stories about people who, who have an addiction that is threatening themselves, it's threatening their families. Sometimes people get their shit together and they transform their lives and they clean up and they, and they change and they change their behavior patterns and they change their way of relating to the world. Right. And sometimes they don't. 
right? And I don't know what the statistics are around there. And I know that there are key indicators that can mm. tell how much support a person has, how likely they are to be able to change. But I, I really think that that's a pretty apt metaphor for where we are as a species, you know, where we're addicted to certain behaviors and we're addicted to certain assumptions, infinite growth, you know, extractivism, all of these things. And we have to, we have to change. We need to go on a 12-step process and transform the way that we're relating to the world. And, and this quantifies the magnitude of the behavioral shift and societal shift that's, that's starting to be underway right now. And, you know, we probably have, you know, we're probably like a couple of years into a 10-year sort of like monumental economic shift that's underway, mm. I would say. So this is going to be a really interesting, you know, um, ride. And so for people listening who are motivated by this story and everything that's at stake, what's one thing that they can do to get involved with Regen Network and the amazing vision that you've laid out for us here today, Gregory? Well, I think it uh, we're really bad at giving people the one thing. If there's one thing about Regen, it's that we really believe in the uniqueness of the contribution opportunity for in different contexts for different people. So if you're a scientist, join the open source science community that we have. We have hundreds of scientists from around the world contributing time and effort to build the, the scientific sense-making capability of the network and, and the bigger community. It's really amazing. There's amazing work going on. If you're a land steward, sign up. Come, come and engage. There's land stewards from around the world communicating on our Discord. There's people sharing, swapping ideas and just like having solidarity. And there's also a, a pathway towards starting to mint credits and starting to get paid for ecological stewardship. Mm -hmm. If you're a crypto speculator, you know, awesome. Like dig in, support, like make build a portfolio that backs your values. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably vibe. And if you're vibing, yeah, I mean, you know, dive in. I, I, take a look at the broader Cosmos ecosystem. There's a lot of amazing things going on. Take a look at Regen, you know, and obviously take a look at the other projects that are doing this because we support each other and we support the economic uh, freedom that we have to do this deep research development and infrastructure work by contributing in that way, right? If you're a developer, we have people that, you know, there's, this is all open source. This is a free open source software movement there. You can go and build, you know, application specific logic for the blockchain. You know, we're going to start bringing on smart contracting functionality and rust and other things like go dig in to Cosmosm, dig into go, you know, there's front end apps being built in JavaScript. I mean, you know, there's just a huge spectrum of ways to engage. So, you know, I would say for whatever your, you know, if you're a, if you're a writer, if you're a storyteller, if you're a memer, you dig in, start thinking about the, the stories of hope and inspiration that you can tell and how that relates to this concept of anchoring, uh, money and financial relationships and the social construction of value back into mm. ecological health where it belongs. Mm. Well said. Yeah. I think that that last piece is so key, right? This idea of a story of hope that we are in a dire situation and we need something to look forward to something that we, something to strive towards. And that's why I know, 
I'm here. I'm quite sure that's why John's here. And I think this conversation really kind of crystallized that there's we're in good company, <laughs> that we are looking forward to a real credible path towards, um, yeah, building a different world. Amazing. Wagrat, we're all going to regenerate Earth together. <laughs> Gregory, it's been an absolute pleasure. I hope it's the first of many. Can't wait to hang out in the, in the flesh, my friend. Thanks so much for coming on today and having a chat with us. Thanks so much for having me and for convening this conversation for the community to come around, to come together around ReFi and the sort of the digital hearth here. Yeah. And uh, yeah, super grateful for the work that you guys are doing at Toucan and uh, Redaoist, uh, ReFi Daoist, I mean, and just the, yeah, it's really been a pleasure to get to interact. And it's such a cool community of humans that's convening yeah. around this big kind of quest for planetary regeneration. So uh, well, let's do it. Cool. Thanks, man. Thanks, Gregory. Have a good rest of your day. Cheers. Ciao.